My name is Lalu Davies Yemitin, and you're listening to My Brother Podcast. Joy and Pain was a hit song, hit record, I think from the 70s. And um, in the album, I'm not going to get too far into the album. My guest today knows all about pain. Uh, and I'm so glad to welcome Dr. Charles Willis to My Brother Podcast. Thank brother, you. Brother, thank how you. How are you doing? First and foremost, it's good to see you. Fantastic, fantastic. And I, let me say, I saw a couple of those podcasts of yours. That is a, an amazing group of brothers you have there. And I'm so honored to be part of this uh, the stage, to share the stage with you. Absolutely, man. So glad to have you. So let's just get right into it. Why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? Okay. Um, I'm married, have three wonderful kids. Uh, been in private practice as an anesthesiologist, pain specialist for over 26 years. Um, I am a spiritual man, meaning that any success in life, yeah, I attribute through him. Uh, any healing that I perform on these patients, I believe it goes through me, uh, from him. Um, I believe that that's really important because patients can see that, can feel that when you uh, feel strongly about uh, their well-being and their care. Um, I My passion is my practice. Uh, I'm also passionate. I play racquetball. Uh, my food, my travels, um, and uh, that's a good stuff. Got it. Love it. So take us back to where it began. I know that you're in now, now in, you know, in North Texas, in the Dallas area. Well, so tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Where, where were you born and where, how did you grow up? So I was born in a little town called Tyler, Texas, in East Texas. Uh, Earl Campbell, everybody knows him, is from that area. My dad is from a country uh, town called White House. That's gotten a little notoriety lately because Patrick Mahomes is from there. Mm. And right, and my mom's from Tyler. Uh, so we moved to Fort Worth when I was uh, six months old. My dad got a job at General Motors. Um, same neighborhood that one of your other guests, Gerald McKelvey is from uh, in Stop Six in Fort Worth. So that's during my formidable years, that's where I grew up. Um, I remember being little uh, and my dad kind of asked me, you know, what I want to be when I grow up, a doctor or a lawyer. Now, I don't remember my response to that, but it kind of sets the seed, you know, the plants the seed for that type of mentality growing up. Um, I, both my parents are college educated. Uh, I'm the first to go uh, beyond college, uh, but I knew since the eighth grade that I wanted to be a doctor. I was good in school, I love sciences, I wanted to help people, and I also wanted a great lifestyle. So to me, that was a, 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 a no-brainer. That was the perfect fit for my career path. You know, it's remarkable when I hear people who so early on had this clear vision uh, of what direction they felt they wanted to head in life. That definitely wasn't my story. Mine was more of a meandering journey. But talk to us beyond the reaching that point of articulation when you were in eighth grade, what you know? What what else did you participate in in, in school, for example? Like, okay. I know you talk about being, you know being raised by educated parents. And I think that's such an important factor and contributor uh, to a lot of people's success. That familiar presence. But what were your parents like, and what were some of the other things you were involved in? So my dad's hard worker. My mom was an entrepreneur. She ended up having barber and beauty supply shop, a salon that she ran. Um, I, growing up in the seventh, eighth, ninth grade, I, I was a nerd. Um, <laughs> I played in the band. 
Uh, academics was my thing. You know, I played a little basketball, but I couldn't jump that high. I couldn't run that fast. So I knew that wasn't going to happen. In fact, I kind of remember a story uh, in private practice. Um, I went to the room to see one of my patients and I saw the name on the chart and I recognized the name. And when I got into the room, I said, you know, the name uh, It's good to see you again. I went to junior high with you and that was in the seventh grade. And she said, huh, Charles Willis, I, I don't remember you. I said, well, you wouldn't because you were in the cool crowd and I wasn't. So there's no way you're going to remember, but times have changed. <laughs> here, here, I, I often tell people, you know, it's okay to be a nerd. And I describe myself today as a nerd that when I was in college, I, I said, I was just a cool nerd. Uh, <laughs> nerds do often uh, finish first at the point in life when it really does count. So you 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 start out early on. That, you know the athletic route was never even a consideration for you. Yeah. And it's refreshing that at least in 2020 we can say that with pride that we uh, appreciated uh, having a year for knowledge because and right. also being a nerd to me, it's about being curious. Mm -hmm. Too often people view it as this, you know, socially awkward feature. That might be more of a geek. Being a nerd was about being intellectually curious. Yeah. Uh, and so by eighth grade, you have a clear sense of where you want to go. What was high school like? And what steps did you start taking by the time you were in high school to so, show yourself up and gear you up to be on your path? So I went in the ninth grade. I was at Trumbull Tech. This is a public school in Fort Worth. And I'm thinking that was going to get me where I need to get to. However, a counselor who was also a friend of the family, she sat me down and she said, Charles, you're in the wrong school. There's a little school in Fort Worth called Trinity Valley. It was a private school. Uh, I had known one other uh, African-American that went there through Jack and Jill, the, the organization we were in growing up. And he was probably the first. Uh, and so this was in 79, 1980. So I talked to my parents, you know, they were willing to make that sacrifice. You know, I didn't get an athletic scholarship or anything like that. We, we had, they had to save money and, and make the sacrifice for me to go there. So in the 10th grade, I changed to Trinity Valley. And that was the biggest decision that changed the trajectory of my life to where I am now. Um, it one, prepared me academically for college so that there's no gap, there's no me catching up from high school to college. And two, is a kind of a, a culture shock because, you know, it's all white environment. I was probably maybe the third black at that school. Mm -hmm. And so it's a culture shock for me. It's also a culture shock for them. I, I, I'm learning how they are and they're kind of learning how I am. Mm -hmm. So for example, the, the biggest uh, obstacle for me coming from Fort Worth was probably my speech. Um, back then, you know, I, growing up in the public schools, I spoke the way we all spoke, right? Uh, I couldn't say rare, it came out rare. And I couldn't say beer, it, it kind of came out brewer. So, you know, they kind of teased me about that, but it was helpful because, you know, we needed to evolve a little bit. But by the same token, they got to see me. They got to see my personality. And a couple of examples, 
you know, I, I couldn't express myself with my, my clothes because we all had uniforms in. But my car, you know, I had a little Nova that I had fixed up. Uh, it had the curb feelers on the side. It had the opera lights. It had a big swan in the front that I, you know, flipped, flipped the switch and, and turned on. So they start calling me the swan. And, but they got to see, they got to see kind of how I roll, right? And so I say that because it's important as we assimilate in society, it's good to learn, but you can also bring part of your identity with you. Uh, you don't have to leave who you are behind. You can, you can float in, in both environments. And that's what I did from 10th, 11th, 12th grade. And I did very well there. Excellent. So, you know, I'm glad you brought up that, you know, I can cut that out. Uh, I'm at my office in Third Ward in Houston, so <laughs> sometimes. Uh, but I'm glad that you, you brought up the part about sort of introducing your personality uh, to them. And I know that for a lot of young people, uh, it's not always been uh, a readily embraced thing. I, I think that requires a level of confidence. So for you to describe yourself as a nerd, but you had a certain level of confidence. Was that just something that was learned or was that just? I, I would probably have to say, you know, as, if you grow up in a supportive environment as my parents were, then I think that uh, fosters confidence. You know, they, they were always supportive of whatever I was doing. They was always positive. And so when you have a childhood like that, then you become pretty confident quickly. Yeah. Like I say, it wasn't great. You know, certain things, that doesn't matter. I was still confident in who I was and, and where I was going. So but I, I would attribute that to the way that my parents raised me. I was just thinking back on how now, uh, you know, they're learning, well, they're more accepting of us now as than they were back in the, obviously this was 81, 82. Sure. And, and, you know, our culture, they love now compared to back then. In fact, I was thinking as I was writing this, I think they call it swag, you know, how they, <laughs> how we bring in a little bit of us, you know, my wife kind of teases and say, you kind of ghetto. I'm like, yeah, I was, and I still kind of am. Yeah. <laughs> It's part of me that you know probably never go away. It, it, it does work out well. So you aged yourself. I was going to ask if you had a cell phone pick up that Nova to kind of age you, but since you called it out yourself, I, yeah. I have to put you on blast. That yeah, I'm sure you didn't have a cell phone back nope. then. They, they didn't have cell phones then. That was, was eighty two. Well, brother, you wear the age so well, and so thank you. ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、
And even though I was pre-med at TCU, I was working. I was, so I, was, I started waiting tables. I was yeah, just to clarify, TCU is Texas Christian University, which yes. is in Fort Worth, which is where you ended up going. Correct. So it was 15 minutes from where we lived. Mm-hmm. And even though I was pre-med, I was working. They still wanted me to do household chores. <laughs> I was like, I don't have time for this. So... I had already started waiting tables. I waited tables all through college. I waited tables all through medical school. And that's that's important. I'll get to that later. But I was like, I have, I have to go. So I, six months into my freshman year, I found a, a old raggedy apartment off of Rosedale. I, I, the money that I was waiting tables uh, actually made me self-sufficient three days a week. I paid for my apartment, paid for my car, my insurance, food, everything. And that that's kind of the story for the next eight years, those three days a week working at different restaurants, being self-sufficient. And my parents, you know, obviously they focus on paying for the, the, the uh, schooling part. I got my cousin to co-sign for my next car because the Nova had it died. So we, my cousin co-signed for it and, and I never looked back. But that was why that decision was for finances. It, it, it ended up being a good decision. TCU was a great school and, um, you know, I had great experiences there. Place the fraternity, and through through that relationship at Capsai, uh, one of the uh, my brothers was a physician in town, and he let me shadow him. You know, maybe clean the toilets and 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 mop and, and sweep, but at least I got to shadow him, kind of see what being a physician is about. And so that was a positive experience as I kept going throughout my uh, this trajectory. So you. You know, one, I want you to share with us uh, what you majored in and how did you balance taking on such what my many will call a challenging major with working three days a week, having to take care of the responsibility of living your own life? How did you balance all of that? And what was that major? I was, uh, I majored in uh, biology. I got a BS in biology. Uh, you know, it's really this one. You make the commitment that you're going to do whatever it takes to get the best grades you can get. All nighters, staying up, not going to as many, you know, social events that my other brothers were going to, you know, focusing on what needs to be done to get the job done and not, and this follows, you know, follows through with the medical school too, not being distracted, make sure your priorities are in line because if you don't, if you don't say whatever it takes, whatever sacrifice I need to make, I need to get these grades. I need to get these grades. I can do a little bit of, you know, fun occasional weekend, but the main thing has to be top priority because if you can't, if you don't, you're not going to, I mean, I saw a lot of people who, who didn't continue that path. Yeah, I, you know, my undergraduate degree is in biotechnology, and I, I just spoke with a, a group of students on Thursday uh, as at my alma mater I'm, I'm on the alumni council, and they're natural science students. And so two things uh, from what you mentioned, one of my comments to their parents, because it was kind of family night, was if they're still staying home, because I attended a commuter school, I said, the fact that they're home does not mean they're there to do chores. They need space. The weekend is not for them to spend time with you. 
is for them to catch up and stay um, ahead of the curve. The other side that I shared with them was in freshman biology class, I remember they asked everyone, how many of you want to go to med school? And all those hands go up. And then obviously by the time you get into cell biology or biochemistry, you see how many of those are still uh, hanging around by then. But you were the exception. And one of the things I talked to them about it was don't be a statistic. So you were the exception. How did you manage the last uh, part of your college and what did you do to prepare yourself sort of for the next phase? So um, I remember taking the Kaplan course so I prepared for the MCAT and I did well with that. Um, this is another funny story. So once I did get into medical school, I applied to four medical school, again, trying to stay in state, trying to keep that cost low mm -hmm. uh, within the UT system. I got accepted to University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston, and I still had a debt to TCU of $5,000, and they weren't going to release my transcript. Mm -hmm. So uh, my parents, like I said, my dad was at General Motors. He was already making barbecue sandwiches to sell to the employees to supplement his income while I was in school. He, in fact, he was making so many sandwiches that the concession people made him stop. He was just, he was just, <laughs> <laughs> but I think he got a loan from somewhere from somebody uh, for that 5,000 so they would release my transcript so I could go on to the next uh, phase of my career at, at UT Houston. So you have this continued trend of your parents making real deep sacrifices. Correct. Um, Correct. To, to set you on the way. And I know that you've uh, ultimately made them proud. Yes. Go through the medical application process. How, how daunting is was that? Was it for you? Or, but how generally daunting can that be? So obviously they're going to look at the total package, you know, academics, extracurricular, you know, community service. So you got to check the box in all these categories. And, you know, the fact that I was working and earning income uh, to present a total package because you're competing against the best of the best in the country and they want someone who kind of stands out, right? So in their minds, I, you know, at UT Houston, that was, uh, you know, I, I stood out enough for them to accept me. And uh, when I got there, I found out that uh, that school had a, it was a great school. Uh, I remember uh, Dr. Red Duke had a TV show at the time. You go from the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston. I'm Dr. Red Duke. So I remember this uh, and he was there, uh, but it had a high attrition rate, meaning, you know, just because you got there doesn't mean there's a, you know, a good chance you'd finish it. And so uh, when we did get to, to UT Houston, we, there was probably 220 people total. We finished with like 180. Uh, mm -hmm. There were maybe like eight African-Americans. Yeah. Eight of twenty percent. Yeah. So I don't I don't I don't think it's the same now, but something was going on there to where it was it was pretty high. We had eight African Americans start and we finished with three. Um and I, I tell people that you know there were people in my class who were obviously way smarter than me, had full academic scholarships in, in college. But once you get to that level, uh in medical school is is the volume of material is just can be overwhelming. So, uh, yes, I had the, uh, the basic academic 
you know, prowess to, to, to succeed. But more than that was my hard work. And again, willing to do whatever is necessary to make sure those grades stayed up. So all nighters for me, all nighters was regular. I don't have a problem studying all through the night, seven, eight in the morning, still studying. And then eight o'clock, go straight in there to the exam. I did that often. Um, and then there's just life, right? Things happen, you know, girlfriends, friends, partying. And, and a lot of people, for their reasons, we can talk about those priorities, just kind of get sidetracked with life a little bit. And you can't do that. Uh, just kind of quickly, in my third year of medical school, my brother was killed. So um, that was tough. Uh, obviously, he was uh, just uh, you know in high school and kind of got in the wrong crowd and ended up getting shot. Uh, but I remember being in my studies and you know getting a phone call from my other brother about you know my little brother, and obviously that that can throw somebody off their path very easily. Uh, but when you have a goal such as this, nothing, absolutely nothing can get in that way if you're trying to succeed. Yeah, that, that, that takes an incredible amount of focus and determination to overcome that kind of uh, personal tragedy. Um, yeah, stick to it. Beyond just, I mean, I know it can seem oversimplified when you said I was determined to do whatever it takes. There were some challenging times where there was there something you leaned on. To so, so, so I kind of in the beginning, I said I'm a spiritual man. Uh, I'm a Christian. Uh, and, and I believe that gives us strength. I mean, it, it says it. And, and people, you know, they mouth it all the time. Let God, you know, carry you through this, you know, troubled time. But it's, it's, it's easier said than done. So in, 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 in putting that in practice is different from just saying it on Sunday. Right. So if you, if you truly believe that he can see you through, that he can comfort you, that he can do all these things, then when the test comes, then you, you have to do it. So I think my my spirituality was very instrumental in me, you know, continuing forward and not kind of getting sidetracked when things like this happen. Um, and, and that that foundation, I think, also has carried me throughout the rest of my career. Now, you didn't transition directly to medical school from undergraduate. You spent a year in an internship. No, no, no. So straight from TCU to medical school, uh, the internship is after medical school. Once you get into residency, so when I finished uh, medical school in four years, then I decided to go into anesthesia. Uh, and I made that decision in my third year of medical school. Uh, so, so tell us how you made that decision and then you can come back to what you were sharing. How did you decide on anesthesia? All we knew was you wanted to be a doctor. But... <laughs> so so uh, uh, originally, uh, going into medical school, I was going to be a pediatrician, right? But then when you start researching it, you realize that, one, I was going to be $100,000 in debt. And it was going to take way too long as a pediatrician to, to pay that back. 
<laughs> well, I'm just, this is fast, I'll, right? I'll send a note of apology to the pediatricians who <laughs> listen to this episode. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, then I was going to be an OBGN. That was my second plan. Uh, then I realized that's, I mean, I did already did. I don't want to do a whole life of late night stuff. Now, I know some of them kind of transition into their practice of where they just do things during the day after a few years, but I was ready to to not do that late night thing once I finish. So my third year of medical school, I did a two week rotation in surgery. And then in that rotation, I was exposed to anesthesia. And there was a, uh, there's another African-American female ahead of me who told me also about anesthesia. And I had never heard about it. So I'm in my third year, didn't know what anesthesia was, but I knew that I was good under stress and I can I can talk to that a little bit with the waiting tables because that's kind of important as well. I was good with my hands. I was good doing procedures, and I also found out at that time. Again, this is I'm just being real. That was like the highest pay specialty. So I'm like, well, I need to pay this money back. So here we go. So I uh, I applied for anesthesia residency. I did an externship my last year of medical school at Parkland, where I was there for a month. And that's in Dallas. And so that way I get to see their program. They get to see me. So when I applied for residency, I was able to get my first choice, which was the program at Parkland. So I was very fortunate after that to come back to town. So it sounds like that was an important strategic decision you made. Yes. Yes. Excellent. So, you know, you, 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 you make that tactical decision, you spend that extra year in the externship. Is that something you'd advise someone who was in so, medical school? So let me, let me make clarification. That's, that's not an extra year. During your last year of medical school, you can go to different places. Got it. Do an externship for a month or two, and yeah. that way you can get some exposure to them. They can get some exposure to you. So that was still part of the four-year part of the rotation. Got it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... You land your ideal residency. It just seems like everything is falling in place for you, man. And uh, so, what was residency like? And and tell us about what, how waiting tables helped you understand how to operate on the pressure. <laughs> so, so like I told you, all through college and medical school, I was a waited table. And I tried to get my kids to do this because one, it was great income, and two, there's several skills that you cultivate while waiting tables. Your memory. You know, going from table to table, remembering what this person needs, your, your timing, being able to deal with the stress, because when you get busy and people start getting frustrated or the kitchen is slow, you have to still come out to the table. Hey, how you doing? How can I help you? What can I do for you with a good spirit, despite all the chaos that's going around you? Right. So it's funny because when I go to clinic now on Fridays, I go uh, and there's a room that got set up for me injections with a fluoroscopy suite and another anesthesia personnel in there. And I so I go in there do an injection. I may go to this room, do a, see a follow up or consult. I may go to this room, do a follow up or consult. I go back to this room. So I'm doing almost like what I did in college, waiting tables, room to room to room to room, kind of remembering what's going on there, remembering what's going on there, and taking care of everybody effectively and efficiently. So that skill has been very valuable throughout my whole tenor as an anesthesiologist pain specialist. Hey, and uh, someone who 
formerly on a wine bar, I can certainly uh, <laughs> appreciate the sentiments that you shared. And you would make a great spokesperson for the restaurant industry. So if you're thinking about retirement plans, <laughs> there might be something else uh, for you to consider. So you, um, how was your residency experience and, and how did that lead to sort of launching your career? Okay. Very good question. It was, great, it was great and bad at the same time. The anesthesia program was the biggest in the country. Um, we would, so the first year I did a, uh, an internship at uh, Methodist. And so I did like some emergency rooms, some radiology, some general medicine, some OBG. I did a little bit of everything during that first year because it's four years total. And that's what they want you to do. So you can get an idea of, you know, learn a little bit of, of everything. I went to Parkland for those three years of anesthesia residency. It, it was a great experience. Like you're not going to match that as far as you know, as a trauma uh, uh, specialized in trauma. You're up all night working. You know, you get the next day off. But as far as seeing patients and seeing a variety of pathology that you can learn from, just, you're not going to top it, right? Uh, I actually was working part-time even in residency at a, an acute care facility. So as you can tell, I, I kind of hustled a lot, right? I, got, I always kind of got something going on. So even though I was in residency, I still was working part-time on my day off in another facility where they treated like acute care injuries, you know, automobile accidents, workers comp. And, and so I learned a lot from that, which also helped me as, in my career later on as a pain management specialist. But there was an incident where, you know, I'm doing well. I think I'm doing well. And this is kind of like my third year of residency. And they, they do a, um, an evaluation and they said, I'm on probation. And so I talked to so I, Dr. Uh, Griffin. He's an African-American. He's on staff, anesthesiologist, very, very instrumental in my career. And I'm like, what's going on? I wasn't aware of any problems. But all of a sudden, they say there's a problem with what I'm doing in anesthesia, right? And, and you know, I'm not a, I don't know how, how I want to say this. Just I guess they, maybe they had a problem with me, with my personality. You know, I'm a, I have my head up. I, I walk around proudly. And, and some people don't necessarily like that, right? So he says, okay, Chuck, whenever you do a case, you have that attending sign it and say how you did. And so for the next six months or whatever, that's what I did. I did the case, the attending look at, oh, great job, great job, check that, sign it there. So then when they came to meet again, we had this book with all these cases where my work was excellent to dispute whatever opinion that was you know factless that somebody else had mm -hmm. so it's a, the reason i, I want to I share that is because it's important to have, we talk about my parents being supportive it's also important to have people like the, the doctor who helped me you know in, in college and then the doctor who helped me in residency it's also have people in your corner who can grab you help you assist you in time because Oftentimes, there's going to be not even a reason that you can think of that you're having a problem, and 
is if you can have somebody on your side who can mentor you, help you through that, give you good advice. I think that makes, and that's why I try to do that with younger, you know, people, physicians, people who in the community, people, you know, because it's so important for us to to do that for one another. And I'm, I'm always appreciative of, you know, what he was able to do for me uh, during my residency. Certainly. Uh, you know, it's an all too common refrain that you hear uh, when, you know, we end up in these higher, um, you know, highly visible roles or important jobs like being a physician uh, where unfounded allegations tend to pop up more frequently or just subjectivity of people who don't think you ought to be there. But having a right and being able to step up for yourself because of that guidance uh, definitely is, is, is something we can all use uh, a lot more of. Mm -hmm. So as you get overcome that obstacle in residency, when you're approaching the end of your residency, how did you start planning to transition into your career? All right. So I knew that I wanted to do product. So there's a couple of paths. Some people want to kind of take the academic path, maybe stay on at the school, kind of do some research. I knew that I wanted to be in private practice, uh, clinical side, you know, uh, kind of have an opportunity to have my own practice. So I, I knew that's the path that I wanted to take. So applied to different jobs, was able to get, uh, at that time, actually there were a, an abundance of anesthesiologists at that particular time when I came out in 94. So private practice jobs were kind of scarce. So I was fortunate enough in Dallas, uh, it's a new group. Uh, it was minority, all, all African-American. They had two late, two female doctors and one guy doctor. And so they hired me as their first associate. Okay. And they had said that, all right, Dr. Willis, within, you know, in the next year, because we're a new group, we will make you partner in, at the end of this year. All right. So I get started and there's some kind of little turmoil among the, you know, my attendings. The, the, I think the, a couple of them were taking more vacation than the, the other one thought they should. So the guy who had brought me in basically left that group. Within six months, he left that group. So the other two still had hired me. And two months later, I said, okay, we're eight months into this. Are you still going to make me partner at the end of the year? So basically they said no. So I said, well, I have to go, right? Not having anywhere to go, I just have to go. So that kind of, so it's a good story because sometimes you think something is bad, but usually it turns out better for you in the long run. If you can just kind of stay the course and, and, and you know, in my career, there's a lot of several tenets, you know, one, like I say, divine intervention has kind of uh, uh, guided my path throughout these, these years, uh, my adaptability and, and the hard work. So when I left the group, didn't have a job, but my plan was to start doing private practice on my own. And so, but I needed income. So I worked at K Clinic, which is an acute care facility, kind of like what I learned how to do in residency, moonlighting, to pay the bills 
while I went and solicited those surgeons that I had worked with before to try to get new business to start developing my anesthesia practice. All right. So probably about three, four months go by. Nobody's really sending me that anesthesia business, but at least I'm paying my bills. And I was fortunate enough to get a job at a, it was a clinic called Pain Relief Network. And they hired me full time. And the significance of that is because I had the debt that I needed to pay off, uh, I really wasn't planning on doing pain management. I was just, I figured I was just gonna do be anesthesiologist, make a two, three hundred thousand dollars and be happy as pie. Well, God had something way bigger than that for me, right? So this is one of these milestones where my path kind of changed into pain management. It wasn't some big plan of mine. It was just that I was able to do what he said and, and be adaptable. So pain relief network, that's where I really learned how to do pain kind of on the job. Uh, I watched the guys, they taught me and I go get videotapes. I go to conferences, practice on cadavers. They didn't have like YouTube, you know, tutorials like they do now because YouTube wasn't around. In fact, we didn't even hardly use computers back then. This is 90 and this is 94, 95. And that's really how I learned how to do pain. So that goes on for a year. And let me just throw this out here too. At that particular time, the standard, or most, when I say standard, most dollars we're doing, we're doing a series of three. You know, we, in, in pain management, we do uh, a lot of interventions, a lot of injections. You know, we have herniated discs, we do that with steroid injections, we do nerve root injections, we do uh, a whole bunch of different procedures that we're able to do with the needle to help alleviate pain. Well, they were doing a series of three epidurals, whatever, no matter what. You get the back pain, you know, you need your injection, they do a series three. Well, for me, if I do one injection and you're doing great with minimal pain, I'm not gonna do two more, Yeah. right? I, I'm, 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 my whole career always put the patient first. But from a business standpoint, I don't think they like that. So about a year goes by and they come to me on a Friday and they say, okay, Dr. Willis, here's your, here's your last check, your last paycheck. I'm kind of like, what are you talking about? He's like, we don't need you anymore. So they fired me. And so, so another, here's, here's, another, here's another opportunity that I keep talking about where things you think is bad, but in the long run, it'll be better because I just sat down that weekend and like, okay, what's my plan? Got to come up with a new plan. So Monday morning, what I did was I went to the family practitioner who was referring the most patients to that pain clinic. And I went to him and I said, hey, doc, what if we build a fluoroscopy suite in your clinic? What if then we do the injections in your clinic? Then you can capitalize on that revenue instead of sending it all to pain network. So that's how I got my next job. And I was doing all pain management for myself without really working for it. So that was a valuable lesson for me, which made me know I don't want to work for anybody anymore. I, can't, I, I need to work for myself because I need, I need to control my own destiny. And 
you know, I know everybody's not, everybody, that's not everybody's thing, but I was fortunate enough to be able to get a position where from that moment on, I was always working for myself. Could you help me differentiate what's the what are the fundamental differences uh, between being a general practitioner? Google uh, being a general practitioner anesthesiologist versus being in pain management. So great question. So if you're so if you're an anesthesiologist, you know somebody's having surgery. Uh, we take them back. We put them to sleep. We uh, hook them up to the monitors. We most of the time intubate them where we have to breathe for them with a trachea tube. And so we're, we're managing their vitals throughout the whole time and keeping them asleep through the IV, through the gases coming in through the tube. We're keeping them asleep. We're keeping them safe the whole time. At the end of the procedure, we wake them up. We go to the recovery room. So they're anesthesiologists that do that all day long. They may do a long eight-hour back case. They may do multiple, you know, little carpal tunnel cases throughout the day. Now, I, I would that what I that's what I thought I was going to be doing for the rest of my life, right? But as I said, because of divine intervention, I ended up not well doing some of that, and later on, all pain management. And I would have been fine with that. Right. But like I said, God had something more for me, and and. Anesthesia and pain management are kind of at opposite ends of the spectrum because when you do anesthesia, you go, you hadn't seen this person, you go into the room, hey, I'm Dr. Willis, I'm going to be doing anesthesia. You do a brief history, you may start their IV if it's not already started, and you really might not see, they won't see you again because if they do, they don't remember in the recovery room versus pain management. I've got people who I'm treating for 20 years. I got patients who, all right, so pain management, um, you, you're on the job, you hurt your back, you go to your primary care doctor, eh, let me give you some, some steroids, let me give you some muscle relaxants, uh, maybe get some therapy, and two months later, four months later, you're still in pain. Uh, I'm gonna send you to the specialist. So then they send the patient to me, I do my evaluation, and if warranted, I do different injections at the next level of care that the PCP is not able to train to do. And then if everything I do fails, then I'm saying, you know, this is beyond what we can do here. Let's see you to the surgeon. So a lot of times, if you're able to get to me before getting the surgery, we can prevent you having surgery. Sometimes, you know, depending on the situation, they may bypass the pain specialist. And then a lot of times, so I still have a lot of patients who have surgery and still in a lot of pain and still need my services, either for various medications, injections, physical therapy, things that we provide. Yeah. So at the point that you now are working um, in that primary care physician's uh, office, but now running your own uh, practice at that point, uh, what adjustments did you have to make from going from being an employee to now having to be the, the person in charge and responsible for, you know, a whole other suite of things? Great question. So now you're, you're learning. So, so before when you were working, when I was working at Pain Relief Network, all I really had to do was just focus on coming in every day, seeing patients and taking care of them. But now you're focusing on, you know, costs. 
cost risk, risk benefit, cost analysis, making sure that, you know, supplies are ordered, making sure that you're compliant with, you know, so you're learning all this information that you probably didn't have to worry about so much before. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so that, that deal probably lasted about three or four years. I got recruited by a big group uh, called Karis at the time. It was like, you know, eight orthopedists, three or four neurologists. They want to be the pain specialist. They recruited me because of my affiliation with this primary care doctor. I worked with them for a few years until I, so all these changes, all these opportunities really just came from word of mouth. I never had, you know, did the head hunt. People who have a need and then they hear about, you know, service or the quality of service you provided. And so that's how this, throughout my whole career, that's how this has happened. And so, uh, there's a bunch of uh, there's some CRNAs who had the anesthesia contract. This was at Dallas Southwest, uh, and they needed a medical director. I served as their medical director for about a year or so, and then when the contract was up for renewal, the administration basically told them, "We don't want CRNA certified registered nurse anesthetist being the contract holders. We need a doctor to be the contract holder." Well, so I was already in a position as the director, so they put it out for bids. I bid it for probably three or four other companies bid it for. I got the contract. So now I'm doing anesthesia in the morning. I do a pain management in the afternoon at the hospital. And I had the hospital contract. It was an exclusive contract so that no one could do anesthesia. I had, had three or four CRNAs working for me, a few anesthesiologists working for me. And no one could do anesthesia at the hospital without my say so. So that, each year I got the contract began. That probably lasted about 10 years. Hospital closed, another company bought it, got the contract again, and then that went on a year. They, when it's time for renewal, they said, we want you to be the medical director. You're doing a great job. And, and, and all throughout my tenure, you know, morbidity and mortality decrease. So again, it goes back to putting the patient first. If, if we go into the surgery and this patient's not optimized medically, I, I didn't have a problem canceling this, the surgery. Before the previous group who was there, they were like, we just need to do this surgery so that we can, you know, make this money, right? But you put the patient first, get them taken care of, they'll come back, they'll appreciate, you know, what you've done for them versus put the patient on the table who's at high risk for problems. Now you got increased ICU times, now you got increased deaths, now you got increased. I, I didn't like that. So we did a great job there. Uh, the, the new company wanted me to do it without the, the it's kind of in the underserved area. So they supplemented that contract with funds, but they wanted me to do it without the supplementation. And I was like, thank you very much, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and <laughs> do something else. So that was probably now 13 years. I've been practicing 26 years. That was probably 13 years ago. So after that point, it made more sense financially for me to just do all pain management. You know, if I got a contract, fine. But if not, I just filled up that space with pain and now stopped doing anesthesia. So I have done anesthesia in the last 13, 14 years, all pain management. So basically, I would go out, never hire, hire a marketing person. Uh, so a lot of things I, I do, kind of, I, I kind of came up with it, right? And, and, and so this is what I tell people too. You're doing what, what you're on this earth meant to do then it's kind of easier for you. You know, when I do injections, 
when I'm seeing patients, I'm able to do them a lot faster, a lot, lot more efficient than a lot of people are because I feel like this is what I'm meant to do. So I go out, I go to different doctors and market it myself. And over time, just increase that to fill out my schedule with all pain management. And now I'm kind of in another subset, of kind of a niche market because now my practice is mostly uh, department of labor patients. Uh, and that kind of happened through divine intervention again. Hmm. Uh, so I take care of mostly the postal workers, TSA uh, employees, and veterans, veterans administration uh, patients. I still have regular commercial insurance, still have some state workers comp, but a good percentage of my practice is uh, Department of Labor patients now. Got it. You know, one thing kept coming to mind when you were re reiterating this desire to sort of control your own destiny. Did your mother's entrepreneurism have anything to do with that? Well, she, I think that she did that later. So when I was growing up, she worked at Tarrant County Convention Center. She worked for Fox and Jacobs. Her, she ended up doing those salons later. Mm -hmm. So I can't say that it came from that. I just, I just like the freedom of, you know, controlling, controlling my own schedule. You know, I take off, you know, once a month we travel. So traveling is, is my passion. We go somewhere every, every month. Uh, if, if I wanted to take off four months and do something, I could, I could do it. So it gives you more options than when, you know, you have to get permission. Yeah. So Dr. Buzz, I want to take a step back and look back. I mean, looking back on your career, which has been an incredible journey. Uh, one, what role or how important has having family support been for you along this journey? Okay. So very important. Uh, my wife, my wife now, uh, we've been married 19 years. She's an attorney. Uh, she doesn't practice attorney. She managing the, the household. She uh, makes sure that my contracts are in order, uh, helps me with the office. Uh, so that support has been very important as far as me being able to focus on seeing patients, you know, getting the next opportunity, make sure we keep moving forward. Uh, I have a quick story that I want to go back to because it kind of illustrates again, you know, my spirituality and, and kind of things that happened in my life. Uh, so after I finished uh, medical school, uh, no, I'm sorry, residency, I was married uh, to my wife who was an anesthesiologist and she passed away when the, my little kids were about one and two years old, okay? So during all this other time that I was talking about all these changes in my career and what's going on, I, my, I had my one and two year old that I was raising probably for about four or five years until I found my current wife, Mitzi. And so we got married when they were about four or five years old. So during that time period, again, my parents came to stay with me you know, on the weekends or during the week to help me. Um, and that's like another, you know, faith and, and play. Um, but yeah, so that was very important that she's been able to, you know, raise the kids, you know, support me in the practice and to, in order for us to get to where uh, we've got. So if you also take a look back um, over your career, 
what advice might you offer a 20 or 30 year old version of Charles? So I think one of the most important things that young kids can do is find their passion. So if you're in this, this is a, this is a cliche, obviously, if you, you're doing what you suppose, if you're doing what you love doing every day, it's almost like not work, right? You're coming in, you're doing what you do, what you want to do. Now, you may not necessarily make a lot of money doing what you love doing, right? You might have to supplement that with, with another job or something, but uh, obviously the, the goal if, for happiness, to me, that's the best way to do that. And the other thing I like to tell these the young people is, you know, this generation now is different from us. It's different from our parents. Our parents worked hard. We worked pretty hard. And, and, and I don't want to, you know, oversimplify this, but there's kind of a, a common theme that I've noticed with the younger generation is they like balance, right? Work, play, time off. And balance is good. It's great if you can get there. But it's kind of hard to get that to that level. So in other words, I'm finding that they're wanting it all now. They're wanting that lifestyle that it may have taken us 15, 20 years to achieve. They're wanting it now. So I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm not understanding how they think that's reasonable because it really takes a lot of hard work to get to that point. And I'm hearing too many stories of a lot of young people who you know don't want to work on the weekends, who maybe think seven o'clock is too early to get to work, who you know not willing to put in that sacrifice to get to that point of balance. So you know it's it's okay to work hard for a few years in order to you know delay just you know delay gratification. People do that all the time. I think it's rare for at an early phase in your career. And I think a lot of times people are expecting that. Yeah. Are there some decisions you might have taken differently, notwithstanding the fact that divine intervention that you shared <laughs> so much of uh, how your life has played out? I can't think of anything that I've done in my career that I would have done differently. Hmm. Well said, well said. If you had to describe moments where you really were at a low point um, along this journey, when might that have been? So I, I touched on it. It's like, um, you know, like that Friday when I was working at, at Pain Relief Network and it's like, well, it's your last day. Mm. And so Obviously, you're thinking, what have I done? What's going on? Am I not good enough? Why are they firing me? Nobody wants to get fired. <laughs> then, you're right. But, but it, gives you, it gives you an opportunity to reflect. And so, you know, you have to ask yourself, is there something else I could have done? Oh, I guess if I had played their game, then I probably wouldn't have gotten fired. Mm. But is that me? You know, is that... Is that what I really want to be? And the answer was no. The answer is I wanted to, to be a patient advocate. I want to do what's right for the patient. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to uh, change who I am for that, for their greed. So 
I was fortunate to be in confidence. So I was like, no, I'm I'm still a, I'm a great doctor. I I just need to find another place to take these talents. And that's where so 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 you asked me a low point, that that's a low point. And then of course I already mentioned the you know the, the problem residency. Um, but other than that, there's just like different periods where you know different opportunities take you in different directions. And and it just you just kind of have to go with the go with the flow and just you know like again I was talking about adaptability and be able to 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 thrive in different environments. So what's the outlook for your field uh, and profession? You talked about when you sort of finished uh, medical school, there was an abundance of anesthesiologists. Mm -hmm. What does the future look like? And what are your general thoughts around having more African-Americans uh, follow in similar footsteps to yours? So, so let me back up a little bit. When you talk about the future of pain management, it's changed. And you've seen this change because of the opiate epidemic. So years ago, even when I was at, you know, right out of pain relief network or probably a year or two after that, I was doing pain management. And I distinctly remember watching uh, 60 Minutes and them talking about, and this, so this was 20 years ago, them talking about, you know, the oxycontins and the oxycodones and how people, you know, breaking into the pharmacies and, and I was just wrecking these towns. And so I made a decision then, I'm not prescribing that. Mm -hmm. So imagine now how many patients I've had to turn away because of my conviction that, you know, is this good for our society? Is this good for this patient? Or is this, this risk benefit ratio too high? So we've already seen big changes in pain management because we've kind of learned that opiates is not the answer to all of these problems or especially high dose opiates. Yes, they're, they are appropriate in certain circumstances. They're appropriate in certain environments. So use judiciously, opiates still have a role, but the high dose opiates that, that the pharmacy, big pharma was telling us was okay to do, that it was safe, nobody's getting addicted. Now you see all these lawsuits, obviously, where they were wrong. They were, you know, again, money. And, and so you see now kind of the influx of alternatives, you know, CBD and, you know, the meditation and, and, and things. So, so a lot of changes have occurred. I think they're for the better overall for, for society and, and for patients. Uh, and and I, I, I love when you know, people like us, African-Americans, you know, want to enter because I, I still love what I do. I still have no idea what I would do if I weren't doing this. So people ask me, like, you know, when am I going to retire? And I'm like, well, what else would I do? This is what I love. So why would I? I can't just sit around and fish all day. And, I, and as much as I love traveling, I can't travel all the time. I, I love traveling once a month and, and take some time off for a few weeks. But I still need something for daily. Yeah. Uh, so um, I, I still encourage uh, people to, to get into this field. And I still love, I still love. So, you know, we talked about the, the difference between anesthesia and pain management. So you put the patient to sleep, you wake them up. All right, good job, doc. You, the patient woke up. <laughs> but, but in pain management, 
people, I see people who suffered for, they've been to other doctors, they've been to other main pain management, they've been suffering for years, and I'm able to do this, this, or connect with a patient, and even another doctor couldn't have, and their life is just turned. I, I can't tell you how many times they've said, you, you literally saved my life, you know, either with that one procedure or the hug or with that medication. And, and that's that jar right there. I mean, that's the main reason that I love doing this. Mm -hmm. You can't put a price on that. Certainly, certainly. So uh, this has been a wonderful interview. It's been great just learning your story. Uh, I'd like to ask sort of a final question. What's your long-term big picture and any closing remarks you might want to share? I will keep doing what I do as long as I love doing it. And if there becomes a point where I don't, then I'll figure out something else. But my closing remark is find your passion, pursue that passion, Hopefully that with, with, with you doing that, you can generate, you know, an income that you can live with. Uh, but I think that's the most important thing as far as deciding what you want to do on, you know, eight hours a day, 40 hours a week for the rest of your life. Incredible, man. Uh, you know, just to recap, you've talked to us about the importance of your faith as the guiding light for your path and the role of divine inter intervention uh, really in your journey. You talk about having that attitude and spirit of doing what it takes by any means necessary. You've talked about the uh, importance of being able to manage through transitions, which in your case, a lot of those were pivotal transitions. Uh, you've talked about the importance of being excellent in what you do. You've talked about the importance of wanting to control your own destiny, uh, making the transition from being an employee to becoming now yourself an employer and having to learn and develop a whole new set of skills. And most importantly, I think in my interview, you've been authentic. And for that, I thank you. Uh, my guest today has been Dr. Charles Willis II. My name is Lalu David Hamilton, and you've been listening to my brother podcast. Thank you.